Please be seated, y'all. Let me begin by reading to you our scripture from the day, of the day. It's from Luke chapter 2, and this is about the journey that took Mary and Joseph to the place where our Savior would be born. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to start off with um, just some interaction here. Tell me about some trips that you've taken. We're going to talk about trips first. We like trips, right? You look forward to them. You plan them. They're exciting. They're a break from reality. Where, where do you like to go? What are some of the best places you've ever been? Disney World, the beach, New Zealand. Yeah, that would be awesome. Italy, Italy, skiing, Costa Rica. Yeah, doesn't that sound great? Wouldn't we like to go any of those places right now? And when we go, what happens when we're on a trip? We're excited, right? Do you take your camera? Okay, yes, you take your camera. Some of y'all are updating Facebook, putting things on there. Some of you wait till you get home to inflict it on your family and friends, right? You make, you know, like, let's watch my slideshow or look at my book or, you know. And, you know, one thing we do is we get an ornament, of our, we go on like a trip a year with the family and we let the kids pick out an ornament. This year it's an RV because we got an RV and went to Yellowstone, drove around. So we have an RV. We're like, oh, the RV. We put it on the tree. We're so excited. We love talking about our trips, but sometimes trips go wrong, don't they? And then they become a journey. <laughs> we don't like that. I'll tell you about one. When I was um, nine, eight or nine, my um, parents planned their most ambitious vacation ever. They were going to take us to Cancun, Mexico. And we were flying on the airline Mexicana. I don't know if Mexicana, does that still exist? There's a reason. <laughs> we, were, um, we were flying out of San Antonio on Mexicana to Cancun, and there were problems with the plane. Whenever there's problems with the plane, you want them to fix the problem. But it took, like, hours, okay? So they've got kids. Let's say I was eight, six, and four, okay? kids in the airport, you know, you have enough stuff to entertain them. This was before portable DVD players, too. <laughs> Thank you, God, for portable DVD players. They didn't have those, so they're just trying to entertain us with, like, books and stuff. It's fraying. You know, there's other kids going to Cancun. Finally, they load us on the plane. We sit there for who knows how long. They offload us. They fix some more stuff. Finally, they reload us. It's really dark now. We were supposed to already be there. It's late at night. And we start going down, taxiing away. We go to the runway. They throttle the plane up, you know, so it's like, and we're just about to take off, and it comes back down. And everyone on the plane goes, ah, you know, like, because it's been so long. And this is what I still remember to this day. The pilot bangs open the door of the cockpit and goes running down the aisle of the plane, screaming in Spanish, okay? I mean, like, whoa, all the passengers stop whining to watch, you know? And there ensues this just gigantic fight in the tail of the plane between the pilot and who knows who, but they're just, and they take us back to the gate, and they're like, we're going to fix the problem. And my parents were like, no, we're done. 
we're done. So I have never been to Cancun. We went to like, <laughs> we went to Six Flags and we got an ornament, you know. Um, that's a trip gone wrong. I still got to go on a vacation, but a journey. What's, if I held it out to you, if I said, I'll give you a trip or I'll give you a journey, which would you take? Trip, right? You take a trip because a journey, we know that a journey implies kind of an interior thing, usually not something that's fun, um, a space of the heart or the soul. Journeys, do you take pictures? I don't. I mean, do you think somebody was like, small kids, we're trying to get to Cancun. We have no pictures of that event. It was terrible. Um, and that's just mild, y'all. I mean, I remember I was trying to think of journeys in my life, and I was 24 years old. I was, I was married, and Kevin had been in the emergency room a couple of times with this crushing pain in his hips. He couldn't figure it out. He was really healthy. He was exercising, stretching. We'd finally been, I mean, it had been years we'd been trying to figure it out. We finally were in this orthopedist's office. And he comes and he pops up an x-ray and he says, you have osteoarthritis and you'll need your hips replaced before you're 50. He said, your hips are like Swiss cheese. They're falling apart. He just said it just like that. And our life changed. No more running. No more basketball. No more of those things that Kevin loved to do. A journey had begun. And y'all better believe I don't have any pictures of that. You don't have any pictures of the day that you come home and the house is empty. You don't have any pictures of the day when all those rejection letters start crumbing. You don't take pictures when you can't sleep at night. It's a journey. And what I wanted to remind us of as we talk about, we've talked about the main characters, about Mary and Joseph and about Elizabeth who encouraged them. I want to talk to you about this journey. I want to kind of bring it back into reality because we, we see this story and we're like, oh, so cute. Oh, yeah, it wasn't. It was terrible. I mean, think about Mary and Joseph. I'm going to take you back. They're engaged to be married. The, the way it happened is often, most often, the, the groom and the bride, it was very serious, the engagement. And once they were engaged, the groom would go home and he would start adding on to his father's house. And that would be their first home. And when that addition to the house was finished, he would come back and get the bride. That's why Jesus says you never know when the groom is coming because you don't know when the work's going to finish. Kind of an interesting thing. So the groom would come back. But in the middle of that, an angel appears to Mary and says, change of plans. We would like, I would, God would like you to be the mother of the Savior, his own son. Will you do it? And Mary says, yes, I'll do it. And then Joseph finds out. Now, we talked about how that must have seemed. Joseph finds out they were both righteous, wonderful people. And Joseph finds out that his fiancée is pregnant and the baby isn't his. And he's just grappling with what to do. And he comes to this very honorable decision. But it's these late night tears streaming down your face, face, your heart being torn out. This is what's happening to this young couple. And finally, they both realize this is God's plan. They're going to face it together. But then they had to face what the rest of the community started saying about them. And in one version, they are married by the time that they have the baby, and the other one, they're not. Either way, think about it. Think about that wedding where you have to speed it up because the bride is pregnant, and what all the neighbors would have been saying about them behind their back, and how unfair it was, because really they had done nothing wrong, but everybody thought, well, how the mighty have fallen, you know? We thought they were so holy, apparently not. And they had to endure that. Or having to walk around unmarried and pregnant out to here. 
One person said maybe that's why somebody didn't want to give them room because you don't give rooms to that kind of people. That was the kind of journey that they were on. And what I'm thinking, what Adam, Adam Hamilton suggests something interesting is that Joseph was actually from Bethlehem. And actually the Bible says that was his hometown. There's, if you read different versions, it says he was from Bethlehem. And so maybe he was going to go back there, but he was waiting in Nazareth with his fiance, his bride with Mary, until she had the baby because that's where the midwife was. That's where her family was. At least they could control this piece of this story that had gotten out of their control. And so then the Roman Empire gets involved. The Roman Empire was the one that ruled Judea. And so they got to boss everybody around. And the emperor said, census time. Why did he want to take a census? Does anyone know? Taxes. He wanted to make sure that people were paying their taxes. So this would be like, think about this, guys. That Where were y'all born? Can you just popcorn some stuff? Where were y'all born? Guys, where were you born? Washington State. Where else? Austin? Ohio. Austin. New York. Arizona. Massachusetts. Okay. Kansas. We're all over the place. So imagine that suddenly on April 15th, we had to go wherever we were born to pay taxes. To pay taxes. Not for a trip. We'd have to go back because Kevin's from, he was not from there, but he was born in New Jersey. He lived there, he and his family, until they wised up. Sorry, New Jersey. Until they were two. And the only thing that endures from that time, because he doesn't remember it at all, is the joke that they would say they put Garden State on the license plate because it sounds better than toxic waste dump. (laughs) So we would have to go, all of us with our kids, get them up there to pay taxes on April 15th in New Jersey, a place we know nothing about. That's what they had to do. They had to go to where they were from. Mary was nine months pregnant. Anybody here ever been nine months pregnant? They made, when we were in birthing things, they made Kevin put on one of those, what do they call them? They're like the sympathy, empathy bellies. And they made the guys in the class put on the empathy belly. Oh my gosh, I have pictures of that because it was hysterical. They were like, sit on the floor and try to get up. They're like, ah, they can't move. I mean, you think I'm exaggerating. They rolled around like little turtles caught on their backs. When you're nine months pregnant, It hurts to walk. And here they were. They weren't Roman citizens, so they couldn't get out of it. They were nothing in this country, so they had to comply, Mary and Joseph. And they had to have a 10-day journey on foot to go to Bethlehem. I can just imagine both of them, they were righteous people. They were brave people trying to cope with this latest disaster. But it got worse. Because when they got there, there was no room. Now imagine for a minute that Adam Hamilton is right. That this is in fact Joseph's hometown. And this is his family living there. So let me show you a little bit of archaeological history. This is called a four-room pillared house. And this is the equivalent, like if I said ranch style, you'd know what type of home that was, right? Ranch style home. This was the typical home in the first century. It was called a four-room pillar. That's what we call it because it has the pillars in the four rooms. On the bottom, in the back, there's storage. That's where they would store things. And on the second level, also storage. They could use the roof when the weather was mild. They might even sleep there because you could get the breeze. Um, If the weather was bad, then they'd go back down. The family lived. This is a cutaway view. The family lived on that second floor. 
and there were two rooms. There was the room that the family slept in and the room called the Cataluma, which is a guest room that the children slept in unless it was needed by visitors and then they gave it up to the visitors who were there. On the first floor is the kitchen where the woman is cooking. Again, it's a cutaway view. And what's inside the house? The stable. They, the stable was in the bottom, the first floor, inside the wall, so that the animals were safe and protected. It also meant if you have animals living under there that you have a free source of heat. So sometimes in these older, these, um, these first century homes, they were built adjacent to each other, kind of like townhomes. Sometimes they were built into a city's wall. Sometimes they backed up to a cave. And so like the cave could be used as the stable area. But this was a traditional home. So imagine Joseph going home to this traditional home with his five, four, five siblings and their families to come home to. So the Cataluma would have been pretty full, right? People sleeping everywhere. Mary and Joseph come in, you think, man, you give it to the pregnant woman, right? But when you had a baby in this day and age, you became unclean. It was a spiritual thing. You had to um, offer a sacrifice and you after a certain amount of time, and you became clean. I kind of think maybe that was God giving the women a break for, like, you get a week off, you know, you're unclean, just rest. Because anything that they touched became unclean. And anyone who touched anything that the woman who had just given birth touched also became unclean. So could it have been that when Mary and Joseph came home after all this scandal that it was actually Joseph's family who said, we don't have room for you? in the guest room. One of the people who listened to the first service said maybe they just didn't want that kind of a person. They were kind of disappointed. It breaks my heart. But they were given a place in the barn, which is on the first floor. Um, Now the Cataluma, it says there's no room in the Cataluma. The Cataluma was a guest room. It can also be an inn. So it might have been that they really were both from Nazareth and he came down. And because of the census, there was no room in the guest room of this inn, and so they put them on the first floor. Now, y'all, this, put, stick this away in your mind, okay? Because I know that there's been times Christmas comes around, the family comes to visit, and you're like, man, I sure wish I could tell Uncle Billy. Sorry, Uncle Billy. House is all full right now, but we have put an air mattress in the garage, and we'll get a space heater out there, and there's camping supplies in those big Tupperware things. So just make yourself at home, Uncle Billy, and we'll be in the house, okay? No? Y'all, okay, y'all are better than me, because I've, there's, huh? In your treehouse, exactly. We could put them in the little girl's playhouse. That could be where they could go. Um, so we've all longed to do that. But to me, it makes it more painful if it was Joseph's family who sent them down to the stable. He said, you know, the whole unclean thing, and we're really overwhelmed, and could you just go stay in the stable? That at the end of this long journey, instead of finding a family to welcome you or even a place in a room, you had to be in a barn. And we take this for granted. We take this for granted. We think maybe in the first century all families had birth in a barn, right? They just went to the barn and had a baby and put it in the feeding trough. That isn't what happened. This was highly disappointing. And these were the two people who had been the most faithful people on the face of the earth. And this is what was happening to them. And can you imagine that young Mary, 13 or 14 years old, just tears seeping down her face? 
as she tries to bring the Savior of the world into existence in a barn. And the reason I want to tell you this story and I want to remind you of what it is is because our society says, come Christmas time, that it has to be better than last year, right? More memorable, more wonderful. You have to, if you have little kids, then this needs to be even way more over the top. And if it's not, then we're failing. Like if it isn't wonderful and perfect and people don't fight at the dinner table and the cooking comes out just great, then we have failed. And God says differently. Because see, that long journey and the whisperers and the Roman emperor and the family or the no room, whatever it was, and the stable, they didn't stop God from coming. God coming into our world. And nobody gave him a place to go. Just gave him a barn. God said, okay, the barn. Not going to stop him. I, um, you know, one of, the, one of the community disasters we've had recently is the lack of rain, right? And praise God that it's been raining. But I think you remember what it's like to pray and to pray and to pray and the skies are like iron, and the lake is drying up, and the trees are dying. I mean, y'all, we don't really miss the cedar trees, right? But we, we miss the live oaks when they die. And then our friends are losing their homes in the fire. And it's this great disappointment in our community. And during the midst of this, I baptized a couple people. And they said, we want to be baptized in the lake. I'm like, okay, can you find a place, you know, like where we can get to the lake? And we did. And one of them I baptized, um, Carol Cowan, he works. We baptized, I baptized him, and he said, I have an LCRA boat right over there, and Laura, I'd like to show you the drought up close. He said, there's some kind of cool things you can see. And you all know me that I'm always looking for good in strange places. So I said, Carol, I'd like to go out, and can you show me something hopeful? He said, well, I don't know, but I'll try. And it wasn't good. I mean, you, you go through... First of all, to get out of the Briarcliff Marina, which is where they picked us up, they've moved all of the marina into little, you know, by that time into the cove, and um, all the marinas are scooting out into the water at the cost of thousands of dollars, and you drive past all of some of y'all's boat docks that just look like a toy that's been dropped somewhere, helter, skelter, different places. We went, and he showed us a homestead that should be under just like 30 feet of water that's coming out of the ground that you can see. That, that was kind of cool to like drive up to an old homestead, because you know it used to be a river that got flooded to make the lake. And he showed us a place, this was really scary, in 55 feet of water. He said, look at the reading, it's 55 feet of water. And then he said, but see out over there, and the water was dazzling, so it was hard to see. Um, but there was a buoy, and then I saw why. There were all these tops of branches from this ancient tree that were poking up out of the water, and he said, this is so dangerous. Because boaters come out here, they're pulling their kids on, you know, like the donut. They don't realize that there's this tree here. He said, somebody could die. So there's this dangerous tree. He took us all these different places. At the very end, he takes us to this um, sandy beach, which I think is normally under like 50 feet of water. He said, I want you to get out and look at something. And we got out. He said, look around. And we looked around, and on the ground were these little shards of glass. There was a button and a belt buckle. And he said, you could go ahead and pick that up because it's just been buried here. This is like where someone used to, I don't know, 
wash their dishes or something 70 years ago? The belt buckle, there was a spur. There's all this stuff. And he said, I think you can make something beautiful out of this. These little broken pieces of glass. And I gathered them up and um, I took them. I actually see Linda out there. She's out. She won't wave too much. But I took them to Linda at Art Attack in the Galleria because I know she makes nice mosaics. And I said, look, I'm, someday I want to tell my church this story that God can bring hope from disaster. And so could we make something beautiful out of this? And we looked, and we looked at all the pieces and um, said, that this is really cool. And we played around with it um, for a couple hours until we had it into a form that I really love. And it looks like this. These are the pieces of glass that have been hidden at the bottom of our lake that we never would have seen if we didn't walk through that drought, that never would have been visible, the treasures that the drought uncovered. This is a treasure that never would have been visible if disaster hadn't have happened. That now we have this story, not of a perfect Christmas, but of God redeeming the disaster, of God saying, you know what? This is going to become beautiful because I'm coming right here. And so too does God walk into the drought and say, you know what? None of you wanted this, but this will be beautiful because I'm coming right here. And when you come home and there's no one there, God stands with you. That is not the final word. And when the rejection letters come and you feel like that is the last one you can get, God is there and that is not the end of the story. And something beautiful can come out of it because that's what our Savior does. He enters into the very real, very gritty, very not wonderful everyday existence of our lives and transforms it. Let's pray. God, we need you this Christmas. We need you to remind us that we don't need the perfect Christmas, but we do need you to come. We need you so badly to come, to remind us that you're not promising us a perfect life, but that when we face those disappointments, you grab our hand. You say to us, even so, this can be transformed that you are so good at wringing beauty and triumph from disaster. And so come to us this Christmas. Come to us, Lord, into our broken and our unperfect lives and make them new because you're with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.